wheel. I don't think he could have done it on purpose, but the title of my message is Be Ye Reconciled to God, which we sang over and over again in the first song. Open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you would, as we see the words here quoted for the hymn as well as for this message in verse 20. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, we pray you in Christ's stead, Paul writes, Be ye reconciled to God. Beloved, we have, therefore, a ministry of reconciliation. This is an important concept for us to understand, because Paul writes to the church of Corinth here, and in particular in chapter 4 and chapter 5, of an encouragement to keep their heads in the game, if we want to call it what the flesh would call it, what man would call it in 2023, but to keep their hearts and their minds centered on God and in the ministry, focused on the ministry. Uh, And here for us in particular, it's not just the teachers or the pastors or those involved in the ministry, uh, the missionary works next door in the other room. It's every single born again believer. You are a missionary. You might not be a fully faithful one or you might be an incredibly faithful one. No one steals your title of Christian. No one steals your responsibility of being a missionary. Paul's intent with this portion of the letter to the Lord's church there in Corinth was to support the purpose of the ministry by illustrating his confidence in the Lord. And we'll get to that in just a moment. It's by this confidence, it's by this faith that we walk not by sight, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Today I want to jump right in by first identifying what the purpose of earthly ministry is. Then we'll identify those points of confidence that Paul lays out. And there are many, but I'm going to try and summarize them with just three. Over in Hebrews chapter 4, in the first two verses, we read the following. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Let me remove what's bracketed off by the commas just to make clear what what he is writing, and then we can add that back in. Let us therefore fear any of you should seem to come short of it. Let us therefore fear what? Lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest. There's a profitability there that's promised in the word of God. It's promised in the gospel that he goes on to talk about in the next verse. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. The desire in preaching the Word of God, from a pulpit or from a gas pump, is that it would profit the hearer. I don't know of too many who would witness to someone hoping they don't receive it. I don't know too many who would witness to somebody about salvation in Christ Jesus hoping that they'll get $10. They don't hope for something mutually exclusive to what they're doing. A faithful witness of Christ is hoping the gospel will be received. There's not a time I've entered this pulpit and not hope this would be the day that Livy would receive the gospel and be saved. Or than any of the rest of you, and I won't call you all out by name, just my own child, uh, than any of the rest of you that have not given a profession, because I don't know who's saved and not. If there's not been a profession given, I have to assume you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. And my prayer, and no doubt the prayer of the family members and, and friends in the room, are that today is the day that you will hear the gospel, and it will be profitable unto you. But, beloved, the gospel can also be profitable unto the born-again hearer. 
That if today that you are found to be backslidden, found to be not as close to the Lord as you once were, today would be the day that you find profitability and encouragement in the Word of God, that you would repent and come back. That you would repent and seek after the face of the Lord. In other words, that God would see fit through regeneration for those who are lost, to give them faith, or by encouragement and chastisement for those who are born again that aren't as close as they once were, and would cause for them to believe and be on fire for God. What is it that they are to believe? I don't know how often we've asked that question, but we should. What is it that we're hopeful the lost will believe? That through the blood of Jesus Christ they can be reconciled unto God the Father. Some might just take a deep breath. Yeah, that's what I was hoping he'd say the answer was. Okay? So what is that? What is that? Just a simple dripping of blood from one who is 100% God, 100% man? What is it that we're asking for others, pleading with others, praying that others will receive and believe? Is it not the death of God Himself? Is it not the burial that is pictured in the submission fully emerged under the water? That burial? Is it not also the resurrection of that same believer coming forth up out of the water with new life? Is the gospel itself not good news? Is it not the concept that your sin, my sin, the elect of God's sin were taken into death by Christ Jesus, conquered, And then new life shown in His resurrection. Is that not what we're asking for others to believe? Why do they need to be reconciled? We read some of it this morning. Romans 3.23 For all of sin to come short of the glory of God. This means that all are sinners. We're going to hit it quickly. But all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means all have something on their record that must be expunged. And it's not one event, beloved. It is your entire life. An entire life in rebellion against God Himself. You're not kind of good. Your righteousness is as filthy menstrual rags. Your righteousness will not buy you anything. Your righteousness did not persuade Christ Jesus to come down from the kingdom and go to the cross and pronounce that it was finished when the work was done. You have no righteousness. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We know what wages are, right? We've got a pretty good idea what sin is, but let's, let's refresh on wages. This is what you've earned. This is all that toiling in the field, all the work that you have done since birth. It has earned you a wage. Some will say, woo, something for seemingly nothing. What is that wage? Death. Nobody's wooing over that. The wages of sin. And this isn't even being personal. And it's definitely not conditional. It is just a simple fact. The wages of sin, and all have sinned, according to Romans 3.23, the wages for that sin is death. This is what you've earned. This is what you've inherited. But there's another part of Romans 6.23 But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That but is our only hope. That gift 
is your only means to seeing the Father. It's through the Son. It is thankfully not entered into this text by the writer as some cruel mocking, but instead is the very purpose behind the writing itself. It speaks of a gift as a contradiction to our wages or earnings thus far. You have earned only death, but there is a gift of everlasting life that will pay that debt. A gift of every because just having that gift is not enough to get you into the kingdom by itself. It has to be enough to pay this debt, or there's still wages of death remaining. And how much death does it take to die? I can't remember Steve's exact numbers, but the 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 rat poison. There's just a small percentage of it that actually kills the rat. He always says, "How much death does it take for you to die?" Any right. Any portion of death is death. And it has to all be conquered. It has to all be Pac-Man gobbled up by everlasting life, by this gift. If it only almost covers it, you die. This gift covers the wages for your works, for your sinfulness. It is covered in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are those, as you faithfully witness, who will say, The walls of the church building itself will come crashing down around me. I witnessed to a man who used to work for me when I um, managed a delivery warehouse for Ashley Furniture. He was one of the best workers I've ever seen. He was also a soldier, a veteran, and spent time as a prisoner of war. And I've referenced him a few times already in some of the other sermons. And I would, every time we'd drive together, because the driver had to have a helper, sometimes it was the boss, just how it goes sometimes, uh, if you're any kind of boss at all, it probably should be the boss at times. But anytime we go together, we talk about Bible, we talk about church, and I'd invite him, and he'd say, well, I can't come in there, though, because you don't know how wicked I am. You don't understand how wicked I have been. I would imagine most of us in this room don't probably have the most accurate gauge of how wicked we have been. Every man is righteous in his own eyes. Every man is doing all right. Even the most honest of men will say, well, I had some sinfulness that had to be covered. But how many of us will fully admit that we need Christ Jesus every hour? Because of the incredible level of wickedness in us, which is to say that our imaginations only imagine evil continually. Continually. We need him every hour. Every day shoveling out those old ashes from the day before, which is a reminder to us that God was good the day before. Those ashes have to be removed. New kindling, new things to be burned, brought back in, and that fire has to be started every single day. day. Not today, Satan. I shall not succumb to thee today, for I have victory in Christ Jesus. If our day doesn't start that way, it will most definitely end in a distance between us and God. If all have sinned, then all therefore have earned death. And there is only one hope of reconciliation. And that is through Jesus Christ our Lord, this gift of eternal life. This is the desire of the preaching of the word. This is the point, the the point, the focus of the ministry itself. Is that the word of God, this word of God, that reconciliation to God through the Son be found in everyone that we deliver the gospel to. 
put aside the reality of your efficiency in delivering the gospel and someone being saved. Some feed, some water, but God giveth the increase. But our hope, our sincere desire every time we give the gospel should be that the one that we are talking to, preaching to, giving our testimony to, will somehow, in some way, profit from it. Now let us get to the three encouragements or points of confidence that Paul gives to the church of Corinth. There are three. There's duty, deed, and desire. The first, duty or responsibility. And I have to say, I have to overpronounce that T because my wife giggles when I say duty and that second T sounds like a D. The first time I preached this, like Livy is doing right now, just hopping in the seat, it was really hard to get through. So understand what duty is, D-U-T-Y. It is a responsibility, a responsibility. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in the first six verses, he says, therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received uh, mercy. Have you received mercy of God? If you're here and born again, you have received mercy of God. I was hoping for some hands or an amen, got nothing. I hope someone here has received mercy of God. You therefore have a ministry. We don't get a choice, preacher? No, you don't. You have a ministry because what's been given unto you is so incredibly powerful and I hope, though it doesn't seem it right now, that you are incredibly thankful for it, that you are burdened to go and tell the rest of the world there is hope of reconciliation with God the Father. That is the purpose of the gospel. It's good news. It's something for us to rejoice over, to get excited about. There are plenty of other hurdles in this life for us to get uncomfortable about, to get angry with. Because in this life, we will have affliction and persecution, but we can be of good cheer because Christ Jesus overcame the world. Put a smile on your face, born-again believer. You've been saved. At the end of this very long, painful day in this world, you will have Jesus. You will not wake up in eternal torment. You will not wake up pleading for just a drop of water. You will wake up having been carried into the bosom of the Father Himself. In the basking warmth of His own light. Not an artificial engine that was created at creation, but the source of light itself. And you will worship Like you have never worshipped before. You'll be worshipping free from distractions. Free from this flesh. Free from that ache you get in your back from sitting in the pew. Free from those thoughts of debt and responsibility that you have in this life. You will simply be free to praise Him and worship Him for all time. He says, therefore, seeing we have this mercy, faint not, but have, but have renounced, we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hit, this is a cost. Okay, This is what's on the line. If you are uncomfortable talking to strangers if you're not willing to show an ounce of rejoicing or joy 
over what God has done for you. Your, cost, your gospel be hid. And it is hid to them that are lost. It is hid from them that need it most. It is hid from them, as we talked about in Sunday school, that you specifically have the ability to connect with and give the gospel to. Because you just didn't feel like it that day. Or you don't understand the word of God enough. And whose fault is that? If you're born again, you have no excuse for not reading your Bibles. I don't want to play patty cake here this morning. You have a responsibility to write this word upon your heart. It is not there for me to write it on your heart. You have the responsibility to write this word upon your heart. You know what it ought to be when Steve teaches and I teach? Review. It ought to be review of things that you have read. You have no one to blame but yourself. And if this gospel be hid, it be hid from the lost. That ought to be the saddest thing we've heard all day. If this gospel is hid, for whatever excuse or reason we have come up with, it's hid from those who are lost. Why do we have this responsibility? Because of the free gift of mercy that has been shown unto us, we are now the master's laborers. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9-13. through 13. We are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, His garden. Ye are God's building. Hear me now. Pay attention to this. What he's saying there in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, is that you are His masterpiece. Now, God's not like man, where man might have one or two masterpieces. God has a, a specific count, a specific multitude. But you are something He is building. And molding. You are his garden. His husbandry. That's the word here. You are his building. You are something he is stitching together from every experience. From every story. Yes, from every heartache. From every rejoicing. You are his novella. That is to be open to the world. That you can say, this is where God said he loved me. And this is where God showed that he loved me. How many mothers in here have a mother's ring? No, it's a big thing up north. Sister Sharon does. She has a reminder of all of her children. She has a reminder of the times in which Genesis 4, God gave unto her a man or a daughter, a woman. And she can remember and say, this is how much God loves me. And you are stitched together as a building or a garden. How many will go out into the garden and say, the carrots are coming in great. And remember the seeds that they had planted. The rocks that they had removed. The soil that they had tilled. The days they prayed for rain. They remembered just about every day in the life of that garden. All that came together for that garden to be found profitable. I buy a can of carrots. I don't know that experience. I don't know what went into it. But you plant a garden in your backyard and you are intimately aware of everything that garden went through. That's how the Father sees you. He knows about every one of those rocks. He knows about every one of them grievous famines. See, for us, a grievous famine would be weeks, maybe months without rain. But for a little carrot, a couple days without rain is a grievous famine, is it not? For a babe in Christ, a couple days without water, 
a couple days without shade, a couple days distant from God. It's a horrible thing. I want you to think about yourself now as that little garden. God has seen every day that has been provided for you. Every ounce of water, every ray of sunlight, every critter that ran across the surface, seeking to devour what lies beneath. Every weed that sought to tempt, every weed that sought to overcome, to choke you out. And according to the grace of God, which is given unto me, Paul says, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon, for other foundation can no man lay, but that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Luke 10, verses 2 through 3, we saw this a couple Sundays ago. This is just before the 70 were sent out. The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few, Jesus says. Pray ye therefore that the Lord of the harvest, that uh, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth. As lambs among wolves. And we talked about that a little bit ago in Sunday school. We've not been merely called to work, beloved. We rejoice in this work. For this work is shining the light of the gospel into the world. Have you ever grown carrots? I'm just going to keep using carrots. Without sunlight. I mean, you hid these things in a building where not even a drop of sunlight could have ever reached them. If you did, I don't want to eat those carrots. These carrots need light. These carrots need to be exposed to that source of life. All of us know that trees and other plant life all grow towards that source, do they not? They all seemingly are reaching out for more and more and more. You know, the only creation that seems to stoop down... And run away from the light is us. Read John 3. Man hates light. Man desires darkness. We are comparable to fungi and mold. In the spectrum of all things that God had created in that sense. Who's puffed up now? What a bunch of moldy dogs returning into our own vomit. When we think about our righteousness being good enough. We have a duty and a responsibility to share this gospel. Because we ought to know, if we read our Bibles, just how unworthy we really are. A responsibility that comes from knowing how unworthy we are and how good God has been to us. Secondly, a deed or an action. Nothing builds the confidence of a servant of Christ more than good works. Now, I'm not talking about good works unto salvation. You can't earn it. And I'm not talking about good works to maintain salvation. You can't keep it. Scripture literally tells us, though, that good works are both good and profitable. Consider what Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 3. In verse 8 and verse 14, we read, This is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, which Strong says confidently or strongly, 
So these things, Paul says, I affirm them confidently and strongly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain or keep up good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. And in verse 14, let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. We can see from that verse that without good works, we might be found unfruitful. Again, this isn't a good works to get or maintain salvation. This is a good works that comes as a necessity because we understand this gift to be what it truly is. And this is a good works that keeps us, maintains us on the ministry. Remember, this is an encouragement from, from Paul because that little church in Corinth had some issues. I'm not going to deal with them in this lesson, but they had some issues. I'm going to just lay it out there for you. Any church that a letter was written to had some issues. That's why there were letters. And his encouragement unto them, and here specifically to Titus, who is to be a minister, is one that we see in Titus 1.4, Paul refers to as his own son after the common faith. This is someone Paul cherished. Paul likely was the deliverer of the gospel when Titus was saved or submitted himself unto leadership in the Lord's church. Would he not provide for him the strongest, the strongest counsel that he had? And what does he say? I affirm constantly, strongly, confidently that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Be careful to do this thing. Full of care. Pay attention to this thing. Maintain it. Do it constantly. Do it consistently. Why? That others might see and glorify God. That's why we do good works. You know what happens to a church that only has one or two doing it? They say, that pastor can work. That man can work. And he's worn out. And then they begin to watch like this. When will he give way? When will he break down? But those who see an entire church careful to maintain good work say they've got something. They've got something. They're on the right path. They're excited about God. Boy, do they love the Lord. You know what else they might say? I'd like to come find out what it is. But they know that I don't. He even speaks to the value of good works when he charges Titus and the other men in Crete to set a pattern of good works so that it, it be there in sample to the church as leaders, but also to the community. What was the phrase I came back from Florida with the first time? It's what we do. Every time on that first trip that I was thanked for doing something or making that trip or whatever it was, I said, it's what we do. Not because it's what Joe does. I don't need any of that credit. I don't need any of that glory. There was enough glory to earn me in eternal life. That's all I needed, and it wasn't mine. It was God's. So when somebody acknowledges Christ in my example, I need to glorify God. I need to say this is what a Christian is. This is what a Christian does. This is what those who are Christ-like ought to be like. Hebrews 10 We've mentioned this before, but in verses 22 through 25, we see the lettuceitudes. There are three lettuces here as we're talking about gardens. I'll read through these verses and then we'll speak to them and move forward. Verse 22 of Hebrews 10, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, 
having our hearts sprinkled or purified from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Number two, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And number three, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Three lettuceitudes. The first one, let us draw near. Here is an admonition of purity, because you cannot draw nigh unto God and hold on to those precious possessions and the friendliness of the world. Come out from among them. Be ye separate. Submit yourselves before God. This is an admonition to stay pure. This is an admonition to be of a renewed mind, which we'll read about here in Romans 12 in just a moment. You can start turning that way if you'd like. A purity, a difference. And it points toward repentance. Because if you're here in backslidden, that's your path back. That's your way back to God. God loves a repenting heart. There's no way around it. If you have strayed, if you're not as close to God as you once were, it's not God. Repent. Oh, I might be humiliated. Yes. You might need to be. Not that I will do it. But you're already humiliated before God because He sees it. You must repent that you can once again be close to Him. Once again draw nigh unto Him. And you won't be able to until you do. It's not a procedure in which the church gets to call out your sinfulness as though we're a bunch of perfect beings And poke fun at you. And then vote as to whether we will stone you to death or accept you. It's not what it's about. Beloved, repentance is simply you coming clean. It's you acknowledging what God has already been telling your heart. You are not right and you must get right with me. You will do it in this life or the next. Every knee shall bow. The second let uh, let us is let us hold fast. This is now an admonition to continue steadfastly in the Word of God. A continual growth, a continual striving, a continual pursuit of Him. Let us hold fast. What we were talking about earlier, remember. What did Paul tell Timothy? Remember that which you'd seen in the Scriptures as a young lad. Remember that which the Lord Jesus did in His own ministry. Remember what the Israelites had gone through. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Adam and Eve. What's the point of this if it's not to remind us of the goodness of God and the wickedness of man and our need for deliverance? You want to find the Word of God to be profitable. Stop fighting against that which He has made the Word of God to be. The third let us is let us consider one another. You know, a lot of folks like that last verse, and sadly, a lot of preachers do too. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. This is not what that means. Hey, uh, Isaac, you haven't been in church in a while, chump. You ought to get there, because you don't know anything that's going on. You're embarrassing me. That's not provoking somebody. Okay, This verse is used a lot, I'm guilty of it too, when it comes to church attendance. The fact of the matter is, you ought to be here if you love the Lord. And if we were all perfect, we would all be here and we would never misuse this verse. I'm not defending the misuse of it. I'm pointing you out to the actual use of it. 
This is the only one of the lettuces in this section that is an outward admonition. If you've got the first two right, let us draw near, let us hold fast. Then you are strong and equipped to admonish or consider one another. And we once again see good works referenced here. Provoke unto love and to good works. Lord help us. Third and lastly, desire or a preference. We ought to have a preference toward God. We ought to have a preference to be done with such things that we see in this life. Such childish things that blow us every which way. And we ought to have a preference toward godly things. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 12. And and it is here where we will wrap up. I want to cover this. Romans 12. I want to read the entire thing. Romans 12 verse 1. I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God. That ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God. Which is your reasonable service. The least you could do. The very least that could be asked of you. He will ask more. But this is the very least he's going to ask from the front to the back of everyone. And be not conformed to this world. The title of this message is to be reconciled unto God. You won't be reconciled unto God if you are conformed to this world. But be ye rather transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Verse 4, For as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office, So we being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another. There is no member greater than another member. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the portion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth on teaching. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Giving the gospel is a type of mercy that we are showing. You've got to do it cheerfully. Verse 9, let love be sincere. Or as the text says, let love be without dissimulation. Abhor or despise that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. Verse 11, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. I'm going quickly. I will come back to these things. Distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. There are those who aren't ready for verse 14 because they can't do verse 8. You might write in the margins, am I a verse 14 Christian or a verse 8 so-called Christian? Verse 15, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay saith the Lord. Verse 20, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. 
For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And you ought to mark that last verse. Our hearts, we should have a desire or a preference toward God, toward the work, and toward his people. This is the transformation of the mind that proves the will of God that the writer's talking about there in verse 2. If we should desire that others be reconciled unto God, it must first be so for us. We can't respond to politicians the same way the world does. We can't respond to discouragement the same way the world does. Because we have a great and holy God. We have hope. We have rejoicing. And yet we bear with the afflictions of the world that have been overcome through Jesus Christ. Is there a stronger admonition than what Paul gives here? And be ye not conformed. The world and the devil himself was constantly trying to conform us to the image and to the ways of the world. And we are commanded to not conform to such things. This is not a decision a pastor makes for his church. It is a decision people make for themselves. It is a decision Baptists make for themselves. It is a decision that a born-again believer chooses to make. I will have one foot in the world, and I will have one foot in God's Word. You will be ripped asunder living such a way. Consider the end of this mental transformation. We see in the descriptions between verses uh, 9 and 12 and all the way down to verse 18, a sober humility. If the local church is a jigsaw puzzle of like-minded believers fitted together for the purpose of worship, edification, and service, then this level of humility makes clear one's position as a part of the whole. As a part of the whole. No member greater than another. Secondly, we see a sincerely love, uh, a sincerely loving brethren. In verses 9-12, through 12, Paul lists here a type of familial relationship that has concern for of good for the other members of the body. This is the type that is able to discipline in love with a sincere intention of seeing the discipline restored. When we were in Olmstead, a lady came forward on the last date. She had been disciplined from the church for uh, being remarried. She'd been divorced and got remarried. She'd been disciplined out of the church. And she's seeking to rectify these things. And a lot of things have changed that have made that possible in her life. And she was coming before the church to repent and asked to be accepted back into the fold. When church discipline is exercised the correct way with love, we are able to see these kinds of things. The members were crying as hard as she was that she was brought back. This is a sincere love, the love without dissimulation. These are honest and fervent in their love for their pastor and fellow brethren, as well as in their service which there ought to be, as we just talked about, with duty and good works. These are hospitable, eager to rejoice, patient in trials and quick in prayer. Thirdly, in verses 14 through 18, we see they have a softened heart for the needs of their field. They are not high-minded in that they are up here and they will only do what they are comfortable with doing for the field. And if the field requires more, they shall not be moved. What do they do? They condescend. They condescend to those that they are to minister to. They don't compromise. That's a different word. They condescend. They come from this puffed up place up here to a level in which the gospel can be heard. 
it is hard to hear the gospel from this pulpit sometimes, I'm sure. And that is as much to my shame as anyone's. But the God, this shouldn't be the first time some hear the gospel. They ought to be hearing it from the ones right there beside them. They ought to be hearing it from me when I'm not up here. Romans 12, verses 20 through 21, speaks to those softened, softened hearts to the needs of the field. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, forget him, he's the enemy. No, no, no. The writer says, feed him. If he thirsts, give him something to drink. What better drink than the everlasting well of life? For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire in his head. What good will that do? Go read Isaiah 6 tonight. Be not overcome of evil. And there's plenty of it. But overcome evil with good. And there is an efficient amount of that as well. Before God all is revealed and without question will be manifest. It should be the desire of, of every missionary that nothing should be hidden. Because it can't be. Romans 13, 5, ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Romans 6, verses 12 through 14, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. You don't answer to me. You answer to God. As those that are alive from the dead. How did... The other Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother, how did he respond to being alive after being dead? Was he not excited in that next chapter to have a place at the supper table? Was he not overcome with joy that the Lord Jesus saw him in his extremely low estate and called for him to come forth? This is how we are to rejoice. This is how we are to yield ourselves before God. And as members, as instruments of righteousness unto God. His garden, his garden, meticulously cared for and fed and watered and heated and grown, tended to and ever watched. Instruments of righteousness unto God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. In closing, here's one more let us. Let us consider again what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7-11. through 11. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God. Our, our vessels are intentionally not perfected in this life. I know many of us would like for them to be. But our vessels are still a type of old man. Our vessels still ache. And a lot of days, these vessels work against us. But it does, does it not declare to the other extreme how excellent it is that the power of God would choose to work on such a degenerate? That the power of God would not, uh, that would, the power of God would see to reside in such a temple? See, the Israelites had it wrong. And what they were looking for in their Messiah, he wasn't looking for a glorious temple. He wasn't looking to boot out the Romans and all the other authorities and to reign supreme in this life. He was looking to reign supreme in this temple. He was looking to be preeminent in this temple. I don't know how many he's found in which he does. He goes on to say, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. 
persecuted but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. An excellency of the power of God. Life itself. The dying of Jesus. All of these things born out in these mortal forms. We take too lightly that which we are here to do. All of us, myself included. We take way too lightly the work that we are here to do. That work is not the banner, the bookstore. It's not what you do for a living. We take lightly the work of sharing the gospel, forgiving as Christ forgave, loving as Christ loved, we take way too lightly all of those things. Nate and I had an opportunity to talk about who'd be in the bride. And man, by the end of that conversation, neither one of us are convinced we will be. Not because we don't desire it, but because we take too lightly the work that we've been called to do. Nate asked me one time, how do you put off the old man and put on the new? He's a lot closer than I am. It has nothing to do with an amputated arm. He is living a life for Christ now, at least in times, that dwarfs me in comparison. You pray for me. Because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I got it all figured out. Doesn't mean I'm a perfect dad. Man, I'm trying. I'm trying in that realm. But it's hard. It's hard because I have a history. I have a flesh that desires pleasing itself. That desires puffing up itself. And I have a commitment. And man, those in the room that know how powerful a work list can be. I have a commitment to things that take me away from being a dad. A commitment to other things that sometimes takes me away from being a pastor. And a lot of commitments that takes me away from being a good husband. I am ashamed of who I am before God because I allow myself to get wrapped up in all the same things the world does and I don't live for him as I should you pray for me you pray for me Heavenly Father Lord